Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. Hi and welcome to Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew, a super series designed to help you get past seven of the most common mistakes Christians make when it comes to the Bible. I'm your host, Mark Hadley, and I'm joined by Dr. Mike Bird, theological gun and the author of the book by the same name. G'day, Mike. Hello, Mark, and hello to all our listeners. Hey, well, this is episode chapter one. The Bible didn't fall out of the sky. Now, it sounds obvious, and you'd be surprised by just how many Christians act as though it did. More on that later. But first up, Mike, thanks for being part of the show. And maybe you can kick us off by telling us why you wrote a book like this. I mean, was there any particular event when you just knew it had to happen? Well, there's several things that have happened to me over the course of, you know, the last 20 years where I've been teaching the Bible, preaching a Bible, discussing the Bible, arguing about the Bible, defending the Bible. And there's a lot of misconceptions both on the church side and on the more, shall we say, unbelieving or secular part of the world. Okay. Uh, For instance, on the secular part of the world, I, I saw on Twitter that there's an American actor called David Cross who's been in several movies, and he went on some sort of anti-biblical rant and saying the Bible was written, then rewritten, and then rewritten again, then passed on, translated, rewritten. And he, he made it look like there was this incredible convoluted process of kind of um, like something that's gone through this incredibly long and distant chain of evolution, if you like. A huge game of Chinese whispers. Yeah, but even worse than that, more like a a massive production line where you start out with like a few small, you know, pieces of metal and by the end of it, you've got like a Toyota or something. And (laughs) uh, it was kind of... Now, on the one hand, and this is the problem, there is a little bit of an element of truth to that, okay, because, you know, like I said, the Bible did not fall out of the sky. I mean, this is a text that's been translated, it's been collected, there's been, um, in some senses, it's been edited and put together. It's more of a, uh, our biblical canon is more more of a library than a book, and there's been a librarian process or a bibliophile process around it. Uh, but then to put that in a discrediting sense, as if it it's just all been, not just transmitted, but been corrupted by the transmission, well, that's a completely different way of putting it. So there's that sort of bias, prejudice, or understanding on the one side, but then even on the Christian side, you know, you've got the issue of where does the Bible come from? And a lot of people just simply don't know. It's like, well, I went down to Kurong and picked up a new NIV or a new ESV, and I think there was some Greek and some Hebrew in there somewhere. <laughs> and that's that, for many people, is the limit to their knowledge. And I think you know, the law has got something to do with Moses. The Gospels are about Jesus, um, and, and that's kind of it. it it's, it's like those... And that's where it ends. Yeah, well, and for a lot of people, uh, where the Bible come from is, is like those medieval ocean maps that say on the margins, and here there be dragons. You know, we just don't know what is out there beyond and before our known limits of knowledge. And in that context, it's very easy to get confused if you read something like a Da Vinci Code sort of conspiracy Mm. or someone's pushing some concrete ideas on how they think the Bible came into being. And sometimes uh, even the more conservative attempts to sort of defend the Bible can be a little bit either unhelpful or sometimes a little bit inaccurate. 
Right. Well, we'll be talking more about today's topic, the Bible didn't fall out of the sky, just up ahead. But first, we're going to benefit from hearing a bit of chapter one. The New Testament Canon Much like the canonization of the Old Testament, the people who collected these Christian books copied them, shared them, and used them in worship and preaching. They were convinced that they carried Jesus' words, apostolic authority, and were in some sense God-given. When some persons made lists about which books were in and out for Christians, they weren't deciding to make certain books scripture based on their own mood or machinations. More properly, early lists of recommended and rejected books were trying to recognise the authority in the books that were already commanding the obedience of the faithful in the churches across Europe, Africa and the Middle East. The consolidation of the New Testament canon was a gradual process as the churches came to agree on a definitive list of Christian writings. No one was walking around with an inspirationometer collecting books that measured a high reading. The 2nd century church held the Jewish scriptures, the words of Jesus, and apostolic instructions in high regard. By the mid-2nd century, the four Gospels and a Pauline letter collection were widely used and highly regarded. These are the primary writings that were used by the apostolic fathers and early Christian apologists, even if other writings were also utilised by Christian groups. By the end of the 2nd century, there arose the need to provide an authoritative list of sacred books for Christian usage, due to heretical Christian groups either heavily editing apostolic writings or composing their own competing literature. Some early lists of authoritative Christian writings, the Muratorian Canon and Anti-Marcionite Prologues, were probably written during this period and they list the books generally accepted in the churches and thought to have been composed within the circle of the apostles. In the succeeding centuries, several lists of authorised books were put forward, but the books that gained immediate currency included the four Gospels, 13 or 14 letters of Paul, 1 Peter and 1 John. Generally speaking, Hebrews, James, Jude, 2 Peter 2 and 3 John, and Revelation, were accepted by many churches, but still disputed by some. The reasons for disputing them were either based on content or doubts over their authorship. Several other books also garnered support, such as The Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter, Epistle of Barnabas, The Didache, and One Clement, but they were eventually rejected by most as either spurious or not written by an apostle. The criteria for a Christian writing becoming canonical appears to have been 1. Apostolicity Was it written by an apostle or an apostolic companion? 2. Antiquity Can it be dated to the apostolic era? 3. Orthodoxy Did it comport with the church's teaching? And 4. Catholicity was it used widely in all the churches? The crystallisation of the process of canonisation took place in the late 4th century. Athanasia's 39th Festal Letter, as well as the councils of Hippo Regis and Carthage, listed the 27 books in our current New Testament as canonical. 
Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew is brought to you by the Eternity Podcast Network, where you can find other cool podcasts like Salt. Join Jenny Salt as she presents a collection of interviews with everyday and high-profile Christians that bring to light the amazing things God has done in the midst of their normal lives. You can find Salt with a whole stable of other great podcasts over at eternitypodcast.com or just follow the link in the show notes. And also in the show notes, you'll find a link that will help you get your own copy of 7 Things I Wish Christians Knew. Now up next, each episode, Mike Bird will interview a well-thought-out Christian who has a lot to contribute on our topic. For episode one, though, we thought the smartest thing to do would be to start with the author. Dr. Mike Bird is the academic dean at Melbourne's Ridley College, where he's a lecturer in theology and also one of the most published New Testament scholars in the country. That includes the New Testament in its world, which he co-authored with N.T. Wright, also a super podcast on the Eternity Podcast Network, by the way. So Mike's the perfect person to explain to us why the Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. Mike, I guess the simplest reader of the Bible knows that their copy didn't just come from the shop or the internet. So start us off. Where did the Bible come from? Well, that is one big epic story. Okay. (laughs) So we know that the end point is either an app on your phone or an ESV study Bible that you have down at Kurong. But behind that, there is a literally centuries of process going on. For a start, you've got a figure of Moses who I think is teaching orally to the people of God. These things get written down. They then get collected, uh, put together, um, you know, and then it's kind of passed on in a mixture of oral and written fashion. Seems to be probably um, codified or, or, or put together by a priestly circle just after the Israelites come back from exile. Uh, okay, so a, what what period in time is that? Just for dummies like myself, when are we talking about it being codified? Well, in terms of the twice, I need to double check on this. <laughs> Let me just think. Um, so yeah, I think you've got it being edited by a priestly circle, probably around the sixth century after the Judeans come back from exile, or something like that. I mean, that's generally what scholarship thinks is going on. But around this time as well, you've got various prophetic figures, both before and after the exile. You've got the prophetic books. You've got the development of a a particular songbook of Israel's worship and liturgy called the Psalter that is also developing during this time. And eventually these books are being collected and being brought together. And by the time you get to the first century, when you get to a figure like Josephus at the end of the first century, He seems to have a pretty concrete idea of what are the books that make up the Hebrew Bible, which are the sacred scriptures of the Jewish people in the first century. And it's pretty much reflects the the sort of the Old Testament canon as we have it today, even though the Jews and Christians differ over the way they order and structure it. So is that what Jesus had as his Bible, if you like, uh, in his day? Was it the Old Testament as we know it today? Well, maybe not as we know it in a singular book. Back then, they would have had various scrolls. So, you know, you could go to Luke chapter 4. Jesus is in a synagogue. They hand him a reading from Isaiah 61. It says he opens the scroll and he reads from it. So they probably had it physically in the form of a scroll. But certainly the Torah would have been widely known, I think probably widely available. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. And then you've got the 
prophets. I think the Psalms were very well known. And a lot of this would have been in the material literary culture, but a lot of it also would have been, I think, memorized or simply known through the repetition of worship and prayers of a daily basis. All right. So people are not just reading off scrolls. They've actually got large slabs of this in their memory. Yeah, and to be honest, that's the the best place to carry your Bible around is is not on a piece of parchment or a scroll where it can get lost or burned or damaged. The best place to carry your Bible is lodged firmly and safely in your head. Okay, I've got to ask, though, um, my memory's not what it was five minutes ago, let alone five years ago. How do I know that what's being carried around in someone's head as they tell me the Bible is, in fact, a faithful recollection? Well, that's because they'll be reciting it or talking about it or, or mentioning it or quoting in company with others. And someone could say, hang on, I think you missed out a line there or something like that. Or hang on, I thought there's a different way of putting that in Aramaic and you qu- quoted it in Hebrew or something like mm. that. So I think there was the sort of a communal sort of a thing where people were quoting, talking about the Bible, paraphrasing the scripture as they knew it, because it was, it, I mean, ancient Judea did have its own type of literary culture but it was also a very oracular society. And in fact, oral communication was probably the main way in which information was disseminated. So oral communication, you're saying, has its own set of rules around it to basically make it more than just he sh- he said, she said. Yeah, I don't know what I call it a set of rules, uh, but there seems to be a dynamic process where things can be passed on orally. And in fact, that continues well into uh, the Christian era, into the common era with the rabbinic teachings, where you would get sayings of a rabbis being memorized by their pupils and then passed on. Now, certainly we know memory is fallible. It's not perfect. But back then, I think people had a mind far more trained for retention because, you know, they didn't have, you know, notebooks, they didn't have iPads, they didn't have printing presses. So it was more normal, it was more expected to commit large bodies of uh, texts or citations of texts or, or performances of texts to have that committed to memory. Right, okay. Now, speaking of the Bible in Jesus' day, I mean, I've read of Jesus saying the law and the prophets, and he's obviously referring to things that are written about himself. But let's break this down with a bit of a deep dive. What is the law? What does that mean? And how did it end up getting into our Bible? Well, the law is the first five books of Moses. It's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, they're attributed to Moses, either as someone who wrote them or at least is you know, responsible for their yeah, emergence or for, for, the, for the beginning of how they, they, they crystallized. And, I mean, we call it the law because it does have all these commandments, like 613 commandments, but there's also a lot of narrative in there. There's even, you know, bits of poetry, you know, songs of celebration. So what we call the law is actually more than the law. And this was the one group of texts that was kind of considered the core to Israel's sacred religion. Okay, if you want to know about God's will, how the Jewish people should live, their story of who they are, where they come from, what God expects for them. The books that you go to are the law or as the the Jews would call them, the Torah, which simply means the teaching or the instruction. And this was the group of writings that was pretty much venerated and esteemed by Jews across the century and certainly in the time of Jesus's day as well. Just out of interest, what do they refer to as the law? I've heard various Hebrew words thrown around, but what do the Jews call their law? 
Well, law can refer to a few different things. It can refer just to the books of Moses. Sometimes you get the uh, sense that law is almost a synonym for scripture. Okay, so it's like they almost mean the the entire what we would call the Old Testament. Uh, normally, though, Jewish authors would divide it up into the law, the prophets, and the writings, which is a kind of tripartite breakdown for what their their holy scriptures are. But amongst those, the law tends to be the most prominent aspect, and can sometimes be sort of a, a summary of the whole Old Testament. Right. Okay. Is that what they call the Torah? Have I got that right? Uh, the Torah refers to the five books of Moses, usually with an emphasis on the various commands and regulations that you get from those writings. Okay, let's dig into the prophets you mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, is there any easy way to get a handle on the prophets? I mean, there's a lot in there. Yeah, well, we tend to divide the prophet prophets into the writing and non-writing prophets. So, you know, we've got narratives like in the Book of Kings about Elijah and Elisha. So these are prophetic figures who ministered in Israel during great times of upheaval and crisis. And then you have what we call the writing prophet. That's where you get people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Amos. And if you want to differentiate them, you can differentiate them between the major and the minor prophets. Basically, that just comes down to how big a book they wrote. So, you know, Isaiah wrote a pretty big book, but then you've got the other prophets, what we call the Book of the Twelve, where you've got people like, you know, Habakkuk and Micah and, and that sort of a thing. And those ones were published as one book, I think. Yeah, the Book of the Twelve, although they originated in different circumstances and places, they were eventually collected together and they were regarded as kind of like, you know, um, one one book or one collection within the prophetic literature itself. Now, we've talked about the law. We've talked about the prophets. What was the what did you say was the collection of the other leftover books? That's what they called the writings. And that's where you've got things like the Psalms, you've got uh, the Book of Proverbs, you know, what, what, what you could generally call wisdom literature, the Book of Job. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate where Daniel belongs. Does Daniel belong among the writings or does Daniel belong with the prophets? Is that because but, of his apocryphal writing inside of Daniel? Uh, no, not, not apocryphal. The word would be apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Thank you for the correction. Is, so that, is that why it's uh, debated as to which section it belongs to? I think it is because on the one hand, you could say there's a prophetic element to it, but, you know, apocalyptic and wisdom do tend to overlap a little bit. And so you can have a little bit of a debate about where Daniel should be located. Okay. Well, that's basically a summary of the Old Testament. What's a canon? Because I, I know now we're, we're going to start talking about books that fit and books that don't fit. What's a canon and how does it work out to be something like the Old Testament? Well, it depends on the contact marks. If you're talking about artillery, it's a big, long metal thing that fires metal bores against the barbarians coming towards your gate. But in the context for our conversation, uh, the canon is a sacred list of sacred books. And this is how I would differentiate it. I would say scripture is a sacred text. Okay, canon is a sacred list of sacred texts. Okay. So, so that's the difference between talking about scripture and talking about a canon. And this list, uh, how how do you get into it? I mean, what test do you have to pass in order to be part of the canon? 
So how do you get onto the uh, New York Times bestseller list Christian version? <laughs> yeah, well, that, that kind of is the question. How was the canon put together? And it's a little bit different from for the Old and the New Testament. For the Old Testament, we've largely inherited that from the Jewish people, their Hebrew Bible. So basically the writings that, that are there in Hebrew, which are, of course, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So Christians inherited that, and that's something that Jesus and the apostles all affirmed. But what about our Christian writings? You've got the four Gospels and Acts, you've got Paul's letters, and you've got the Catholic epistles and the book of Revelation. Now, during the apostolic period and, and then uh, going beyond that, a lot of Christians were writing books. And very clearly, a consensus developed around at least the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as well as Acts, Paul's letters, including Hebrews, because people thought, well, Hebrew sounds close enough to Paul. We'll kind of stick it there uh, on, on Paul's side of the ledger. And First Peter and First John. They were the writings that everyone was pretty convinced were from the apostles, were being widely used and were authoritative for Christian-like preaching and praxis. Right. Then there were some other books that people had questions about. Like some people looked at Revelation and said, wow, this is amazing. This is a great insight into how to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. Other people looked at it and said, man, that's a lot of that's a lot of strange imagery going on there. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a I don't know what he's talking about, let alone whether I believe it. And some people had a look at James and said, yeah, is, is, is he taking a pot shot at Paul, is he? Or, or is he just doing a mild corrective to different interpretations? And then there were some other books, like there was a very popular writing called The Shepherd of Hermas, which was a sort of very symbolic narrative, a lot of you know moral exhortation. And it was very popular as well. And some people wanted to put that in. Or another text called The Apocalypse of Peter, which is kind of uh, a very, I think, lurid and descriptive account of the final judgment. I mean, some people wanted to put that writing in as well. So around the edges of the canon, you did get a few debates about what book should be in and what book should be out. However, by the time you get to about the fourth century, the developing consensus is that the 27 books that make up our New Testament, they are the ones that people are using and affirming. And then they generally become like officially recognized by various councils and bishops and leaders that these are the books that Christians should be using to order their faith, worship, and practice. Yeah, so let me stop you there for a second. So the canon of the New Testament isn't something that's decided in one great big go. So, you know, Constantine or someone else didn't come along and say, right, this is it. But it was actually largely formulated long before those councils came along. Am I right in understanding that? Yeah, I think the basic infrastructure, or dare I say the basic skeleton for the New Testament is in place by about the mid-2nd century. Because by then, uh, a lot of the church fathers are quoting the four Gospels, Acts, Paul's letters, 1 John and 1 Peter. It's, it's getting the other books to decide those books on the margins like, you know, Shepherd of Hamas, is that in or out? Um, what about Second uh, and 3 John? Where do they stand? It's sort of, it takes a while for a developing consensus to happen. But it was not a top-down process. It wasn't mm. like Constantine or a bishop said, that's it, I've had enough these are the books we're going to have. But before that, there was a little bit of debate. For example, in the Syrian church, in the Syriac-speaking church, all the way in eastern Syria, they initially accepted the Gospels and Paul's letters, 
they had a, a lot of concerns or they were uh, a little bit dubious about the Catholic letters. Okay. Mm. Now, in the. Uh, just explain for everybody, just for a second, the Catholic letters, what they are. Well, they're the general epistles. They're the letters in the New Testament not written by Paul. Right. So okay. So like, they're, they're not just something that retain, you know, pertains to the Catholic Church. They're letters written by someone other than Paul. Yep. So that's by, you know, John, Peter, Jude, James, and, and the epistle to the Hebrews. We call them the Catholic epistles or the general epistles. Right. So that the Syriac Church for a for a while did not accept the Catholic letters; they only accepted the Gospels and Paul. And there were other people who really liked things, like I said, the Shepherd of Hermas or the Apocalypse of Peter or the Didache. And you know, you can find letter collections that you know a copy of the New Testament that might have the Shepherd of Hermas at the very end of it. So it, it was a little bit fuzzy to begin with, but eventually you get this sort of consensus emerging and. The churches, you know, coming to of one mind of what makes up their canon, their, their sacred register of sacred books. Okay, so we've got uh, an established canon for the Old Testament, and this is you've talked us through how we got the canon for the New Testament, but there is a bunch of other little books that sort of sit in between those that some Bibles seem to have and others don't. And I understand they're called the Apocrypha. So, firstly, what are they, and are they safe to read? Uh, yeah, they're safe to read. If you read them, your head will not explode. So <laughs> you don't have to you don't have to worry about that. But but here we go. So you've you've got the, the Jewish sacred writings, okay? So you've got the Hebrew Bible. But there's also a lot of writings by the Jews during the Hellenistic period, the Greek period. You know, you remember when Alexander the Great conquered the uh, Eastern Mediterranean and Persia sure, sure. in the fourth century. Well, wherever he went, he took Greek culture with him. And Greek language and learning and philosophy and institutions were spread basically all the way from Athens to Afghanistan. There was Greek culture all over the place. And many of the Jews uh, in the subsequent centuries then grew up in this Greek world. And for many of them, they were probably more uh, culturally Greek than they were Jewish, even if they were Jewish by religion and kind of like nationality, many of them were Greek, and many of them began to write about God in the Greek language. You get writings like the Wisdom of Solomon, or you get some Hebrew writings like Ben Sirach, which start off in Hebrew, but then become translated into Greek, and the Greek version becomes very popular. Mm. Or you get books like 1 and 2 Maccabees, which are about the Judean uprising against the Seleucid monarchy, who tried to impose Greek religion on the Jewish people in the second century BC. So you've got all these other writings by Jews about Jewish faith, about Jewish um, uh, institutions and, and, and hope and life and wisdom, but it's mainly written in Greek. So it can't really be part of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament, but this was part of the Bible that the Christians inherited because they were mostly Greek speakers. So mm. they inherited not just a translation of the Old Testament in Greek that we call the Septuagint, they also uh, inherited these other Jewish writings that are in Greek but not found in the Hebrew Bible. And it's those other Jewish writings that, are, that have a Greek publication uh, which become known as the Apocrypha. And okay, initial so I'll just I'll just stop you for the second there so I can summarize what we're up to. So this is how we came up with the Apocrypha. They're these books that that sit inside this 400-year period. They're basically inspired by the Greek period. But why are they not 
in the Bible? Why are they not considered to be part of the canon? Well, it depends whose Bible you're talking about. Uh, They're not part of the Hebrew Bible because they're not part of that uh, ancient Israelite tradition. They're kind of more latecomers, particularly that emerging during the Hellenistic or Greek period. So that's why our Jewish friends do not uh, attach them any canonical status in their own list of sacred books. Uh, The Greek-speaking church does include them in their Bible, and they don't they don't divide up the Old and New Testament and the Apocrypha. They just call it, I think if my Greek is correct, the Anogeneskonomenon, the things to be read. Right. And they now whether that's Genesis or 1 Maccabees or the Epistle to the Romans, it's just the stuff that you read if you're Greek Orthodox. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, the Catholics uh, di- eventually did divide it up because initially you had the New Testament and you had the Old Testament in Greek, which meant the Hebrew Bible and these other writings. But Mm. then you get a key figure called Jerome, and Jerome is a theologian, and he is a really good translator. I mean, he knows Hebrew, he knows Greek, he knows Latin, and then he offers this kind of definitive Latin translation of the Bible. And he's the one who really makes the division because he knows a lot of stuff that's in the Greek Old Testament is mm-hmm. not in the Hebrew Bible. Mm. So he wants to create a separate category for this other stuff, for these Jewish writings that are not found in the Hebrew Bible, and he calls it the Apocrypha. Well, that's, that's around that time. That's where he gets its name. So the Catholics do recognize it as a type of source in authority and in matters of religion, but you've got the books that correspond to the Hebrew Bible then you've got the books that correspond to these Jewish Greek writings for the most part, and then you've got the New Testament. And that's kind of where the division uh, existed, certainly in the Western church, in the Latin-speaking church, that is how they divided it up. And that was then inherited into the English-speaking world. When our Bible was translated to English, the Apocrypha was normally translated with it. And pretty much up until about the 1880s, most Protestant Bibles also came with an Apocrypha. Right. And it's just been a a choice to not include it now? What's behind that? Uh, Well, the reason not to include the Apocrypha, I mean, you could say there is partly behind it a doctrine of Scripture, that these books are not recognized as part of the Jewish canon. Uh, But to be honest, the main reason for not including them was anti-Catholic bias. Mm. Uh, The Catholics have the Apocrypha. I don't like Catholics, therefore I'm going to get rid of my Apocrypha. Now, you know, that said, uh, even Catholics uh, would would not make the Apocrypha the key source of their own doctrine of, of the Christian faith and mm. the church. Uh, they do have a kind of secondary status, if you like. Uh, Anglicans, such as myself, we believe the Apocrypha is useful to read, but it's not the basis of Christian teaching and doctrine. There are some writings in the Apocrypha you can, you can make a type of theological critique about, there's some of them that may not be quite kosher, you might say, particularly uh, in the doctrine of you know what happens to people after they pass away or in some other aspects. So there is, there is a little bit of argy-bargy mm. about the status and the apocrypha. But what I tell Christians is this, I say, look, um, you don't have to be Anglican or Catholic to appreciate the apocrypha. It's a great window on what was happening uh, for and among the Jewish people 
between the end of the Hebrew Bible and the beginning of the New Testament. So it's, it's a great gap filler. And there's some very moving and stirring writings that you can come across. I and mean, you can read one Esdras, which is like a Greek version of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's also the Maccabean literature, which is really great about how the Jews are able to throw off the yoke of, of um, Seleucid domination and that type of thing. And some of these writings, like the Wisdom of Solomon, I'm pretty sure is being used by Paul when he writes his letter to the Romans. So right. this is a literature that, that Christians, including the apostles, I think were aware of, and they definitely used in their own resourcing and their own preaching and teaching about Jesus. Right. So helpful literature, not inspired but definitely something that's helpful to know in terms of understanding the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament and and the preachers of the New Testament themselves. That's exactly right, Mark. Wow, I could almost pass one of your courses at this point, but I'll move this on. Look, um, now that we sort of understand firmly what's in the New Testament, let's do a rapid-fire round for those people who are really just trying to struggle between what each book is in their New Testament. So, Mike, the Gospels, give me a sentence or so. Four great biographies of Jesus, diverse and powerful and poignant in their own right. Okay, the Acts of the Apostles. Reader's Digest version of Peter and Paul. Right, that's awesome. Okay, so the letters of Paul sounds pretty self-explanatory, but what were they for? Paul writing letters to congregations that can be classified as good, bad, and ugly. I, oh, you mean the congregations or the letters themselves? Uh, the congregations. Good. Okay. And the Catholic letters, we had to go at this before, but what are they for? Uh, they're to remind you that Paul is not the only show in town. There were other Christian leaders and they had some good things to say. And now one of the uh, scariest books of all, the book of Revelation. What is it? Yeah, not so much the end of the world, but how to be a faithful Christian in the face of empire. Well, finally, now that we've got a really solid grasp on the fact that the Bible didn't just fall to the ground or come straight out of the sky, I hear every now and again about extra Gospels. Uh, there's the Gospel of Thomas, I think. Uh, what are they and why weren't they included? Yeah, I mean, there was a big explosion of Christian literature in the second century. And as the what we would call the canonical Gospels, as they became popular, uh, people began to write their own literature. Now, some of this you could say was maybe like fan fiction, like I want to write kind of like Luke does, but I've got my <laughs> own view, my own perspective. Some of these, I think, were intended to be read beside the Gospels as a kind of like a their own little narrative commentary on them. Some mm. of them, I think, were designed to supplant the Gospels. So I think uh, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Thomas, he looked at Matthew and said, oh, I don't like this stuff. I've got a, be I've got a better idea what Jesus was like. Uh, and who, who then writes his own Gospel, uh, which is just a list of sayings of Jesus, some of them incredibly esoteric, who writes his own book about Jesus with the explicit purpose, I think, of trying to supplant or replace uh, something like the Gospel of Matthew. Then you've got something like the Gospel of Peter, which is largely a story about Jesus's death and resurrection. It, it seems to be a little bit more embellished, a little bit more um, uh, dramatic or extravagant in the way it describes what's going on. But I mean, you could you could regard that as a type of commentary on the passion story in the canonical Gospels. Uh, and then you've got some other writings, like you've got the Gospel of Judas, which seems to be an explicitly Gnostic account of who Jesus is. And Gnosticism was a, well, it's kind of hard to explain, but it was, it was a type of heresy 
that focused on a different way of understanding the universe, who Jesus is, and how he comes to save us, not so much from sin and death, but from the lack of knowledge we have of our celestial origins and how we can get away from the material world. You know, things sort of along those lines. So there was a lot of other literature. Some of it was broadly conducive to a type of orthodox Christianity, but some of it was pushing ideas that kind of went against the uh, the faith of the great church. And for that reasons, these other writings were you know, either not included or in some places they were explicitly attacked as being heresies or in the very least being unhealthy for a vibrant Christian faith. And this process of deciding whether they were A or B, so to speak, this is not something that just happened at a particular meeting again. This is something that is developed by the church community itself over centuries. Yeah, well, it gets kind of mixed. Like on the one hand, you get a bishop called Serapion. He hears that there is a congregation that's reading the Gospel of Peter. And he says, okay, yeah, fine, no worries. It doesn't sound too bad. But then he hears that some people are using the Gospel of Peter's to push some heretical ideas. He thinks, oh, okay, if that's what you're using this thing for, then uh, no, let's stick a pin in it and let's not read the Gospel of Peter at church. So on the one hand, they're kind of open and inclusive of reading any text that's about Jesus, but it's what it means and how it applies in practice. But then you get someone like Irenaeus or a Tertullian, and they really do critique these other writings of these other church leaders. Like there was one church leader called Marcion. He put together his own version of the Gospel of Luke, cut out all the Jewish bits, kind of had his own collection of Paul's letters, wrote his own book called Antitheses, trying to show the contradictions between the Old and the New Testament. So you know, the God, God of the Old Testament is a mean, nasty God, and mm. Jesus comes to save us from the God of the Old Testament. You do get some Christian uh, leaders, theologians, bishops, attacking that kind of literature uh, because they see it as a distortion. They see it as a, a real corruption of the Christian faith. Right. Okay. Well, listen, let me see if I can pull some of this together as we come to a close. Uh, we've got an oral history of the Bible, and then it got written down into Hebrew over various authors and at various periods. Then it got into Aramaic as well, uh, Greek, and finally Latin. How do we end up with an English Bible? Well, uh, in the English church, I mean, they la they're largely part of the Western church. They pretty much use the Latin Vulgate as their Bible. But eventually you do get people concerned with translating the Bible into English and making it more accessible and more available for the average people in England. So you get someone like John Wycliffe. Uh, he starts somewhat surreptitiously translating the Bible into English and, you know, eventually he pays for it quite dearly. Uh, then with the Protestant Reformation. Sorry, uh, that might be a reference that uh, people are missing. I'm certainly missing it. Uh, did he have to pay a lot for that translation or are you saying that something else happened because of it? I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he was killed. I have to double <laughs> okay. check that. That's a serious payment. Okay, sorry for stopping you there. So where do we go from Wycliffe? Uh, from Wycliffe, you then get the English Reformation. And this is where people are now translating the Bible, not from Latin, but from the original Hebrew and Greek. And so, you know, Martin Luther, he makes his own translation of the Bible into, you know, the native German. That becomes, you know, a very famous 
book for the German language for the next, you know, hundreds of years. And then you get someone in England called William Tyndall also starts translating the Bible into English as well until eventually um, he's betrayed, captured and executed. And what's really, really sad is within a few years of Tyndall's death uh, that the British government or the, now the British crown then commissions an English translation of the Bible. And oh, so he was through, a man ahead of his time. Uh, he was, but he was on the wrong side of the law mm. uh, at the wrong time. And so they, they begin to produce their own uh, official translations of the Bible. And this is where you've got people like Miles Coverdale being involved. Uh, you've got what's called the Bishop's Bible. But it all really comes to a head in the 17th century when you get the publication of the King James Bible, which then becomes the main English translation for the English-speaking world for the next, well, roughly 400 years, uh, really until the late 19th and 20th century, where you then get a... Uh, uh, a plethora of uh, English translations emerging. And that's what we're basically dealing with today. Exactly. That's why there are so many different Bibles you can choose down at Kurong. You know, the NIV, the NRSV, the CSV, the CSB, the world is now filled with different English translations. Well, thanks for joining us for Seven Things I Wish Christians Knew. We hope it's been a helpful challenge for some of the unconscious assumptions we make about history's best-selling book. Mike, in a sentence or two, what do you think the takeaway is for this episode? Okay, the Bible didn't come through some sort of convoluted conspiracy theory, and nor did it drop out of the sky. Uh, God gave his word to the church, and the church, through their various processes the various trials their own literary culture put the word of god in its canonical location and that's where we have it today right well if you're convinced you can get your own copy of seven things i wish christians knew by following the link in the show notes now next episode we invite dr peter williams the author of can we trust the gospels onto the show to discuss our next chapter the bible is divinely given and humanly composed mike thanks heaps for being on the show thanks for having me mark and thanks to everyone for listening no worries and hope you can join us next time bye The Eternity Podcast Network. EternityPodcasts.com.au